Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Moving to Live is back for another podcast interview. I've joked around before and said that we're an international podcast because we've interviewed a couple of Canadians. With today's interview, we truly have become international because we're in the other hemisphere. We are interviewing somebody from New Zealand who was originally, I believe, from the United States. We're fortunate enough to have Dr. Stacy Sims from University of Waikato, and we're interested in her because she has a very interesting background of doing a variety of things. What I really liked about her introduction and her bio form is that she took a six-year hiatus from academia to go to industry, and that's very atypical and a good way for typical academics. So, Dr. Sims, I want to thank you for joining Moving to Live, and I'm looking forward to hearing your story. Yeah, thanks for having me. I am I am American, but I might have a muddled accent and say I'm global. And the interesting thing, I tell people one of the ways that uh, we find people to interview for Moving to Live is either people that I'm aware of from reading what they have or some of our past interviews suggest uh, individuals. And in your case, somebody suggested you and you were somebody that I had considered because I was familiar with you because I don't know if you remember this, but you wrote a couple of endurance columns for me for the Strength and Conditioning Journal back in the early 2000s. Yep. Yep. And don't tell it because then that tells our ages. And the interesting thing is the, the gentleman who suggested it, uh, Menachem Brody, who is in Israel suggested you, he said, you know, you ought, you ought to contact Dr. Sims because I've read some of her stuff and she's interesting. It's like, you know, I've actually thought about interviewing her or asking her if she'd be willing to be interviewed, but I haven't done it yet because the time zone difference between Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and New Zealand is 16 hours, but he pushed me to do it. So I appreciate you being here and I'm looking forward to this. I, th- I think the most interesting question that I can always ask each moving to live uh, person that I interview is if you see somebody, if you meet them and they say, well, what do you do? What's your 30 second or 20 second spiel saying, well, this is what I do for a living. My 30 second spiel is often um, 
sex differences in training and nutrition. And people are like, wait? So then I translate and say, well, women are not small men and our physiology and everything requires us to do things differently than what the mainstream is telling us to do. And I think we'll explore that more in the second aspect, the second aspect of the interview. I know what's interesting with that, as I recall back to my master's and doctoral studies, the majority of nutrition studies that you read and even, uh, just plain physiology studies use men as subjects. So I think that that's great. Probably. Yeah. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you probably looked at that as a female athlete and said, wait a second, some of this stuff doesn't make sense for me. Exactly. Exactly. And often, you know, you're training and racing with people. And like I was on the crew team during my undergrad, and there are times when we were all working really well together and keeping on par with our training and progressing. And then other times we're like, what the hell is going on? Um, so then you start looking and saying, well, yeah, women can't do intensity three days in a row. You need a bit of a break because there's sex differences in muscle enzyme activity. Uh, menstrual cycle has a lot to play into it. What you eat, how you recover, all these different things. And so that kind of jump-started me into really looking at women versus men. I saw an article earlier this week, and I'm probably – I'm not going to even attempt to say where it was from, but the basic synopsis was – Evidence-based practices are there to give you a start. They shouldn't be taken as dogma. And I'm butchering that. But I think what, what it's saying is it's saying everybody is an individual and you start with some basic principles, but you have to consider how do you differ from what the research is. Yeah, not very many people think that way. So you are in New Zealand right now. You are an American. And I yeah. know from, I have the benefit of reading your brief bio sheet that you filled out for me prior, prior, you have a vast variety of athletic experiences. And I think the question since, uh, moving to live as a podcast about movement is, were you always active starting when you were growing up or is this something that you found when you got to college and started rowing crew? No, when I was growing up, um, and it has to do a little bit with sibling rivalry, I think so I'm the youngest my sister's three years older, and she used to boss me around, and I found the only time she wouldn't boss me around is when I was out riding my bike and getting away from her or going up trees and hiding in tree forts. And then I found that when you're moving and, and just being active, not only is it freedom and you get to see a lot of things, but then you also escape like sibling bulliness. And what were was this just riding your bike for fun, or were you a bike racer and – a triathlete or a duathlete or back probably when you and I started, they were called biathlons, the running and biking. Um, I, as a kid, just rode around the neighborhood. So grew up as an army brat and that's the way you got to friends' houses is riding bikes. And then I got into um, running because my ballet instructor told me I needed to choose between ballet and running and recommended running. So I got into cross country and ultra running and then gravitated into triathlon after crew. Um, I got involved in crew because I wanted to take a break from cross country running. I didn't want to run collegially. And then I met some rowers and like, hey, this would be really cool. Uh, and then when I started my PhD, um, I kind of took a step back and really enjoyed bike racing. And so got into road racing and race, raced the world cup circuit and, um, race for the New Zealand national team and such here. 
And then when I moved back to the States, I raced for TIPCO when um, I was in California. And then it got to a point where I had to choose between career racing and marriage. And I figured probably career and marriage was a better option than bike racing. And yeah, Yeah. so kind of got out of that. And yeah, now I just do stuff like a dog. I have to be outside every day. (laughs) I have dogs and that's what gets me outside every day. Yeah. And I want to take a little bit of a step back. So you had mentioned a couple of times that you rode crew in college. And I think what's interesting for many people with college athletics is very, very few have the potential to go and do that particular activity after college, whether they're in a sport where you can make a living at it or a sport that uh, you can potentially go on and compete uh, either on a world stage or in the Olympics, which is a specified world stage. I know I interviewed Don Moxley, who's a sports scientist at the Ohio State, and I asked him how he knew his wrestling career was over, and his comment was essentially, well, the best heavyweight wrestler in the world was an American, and I knew I wasn't going to beat him, so I better find something else to do. So with rowing crew in college, where was the point that you realized, it's like, okay, I'm enjoying this, I'm doing this, I'm better than many people because I'm able to do it in college, but either I don't want to continue doing it to possibly make the Olympics, or I don't think I have the skills or the desire to do that. Um, I thought I was going to be a rower forever. And I have a, a boat still sitting at the reservoir by my mom's house in Virginia. Um, but when I went to grad school in Massachusetts, it was so cold and I don't do cold well. And I didn't want to train indoors for eight months of the year. So I was like, I'm going to give um, trail and, and um, ultra running a go because it seemed more applicable to be able to run on the trails and snowshoeing than it did to get in a boat or be on an erg again inside for hours on end. And then that kind of curtailed the whole crew thing. I would row in the summer still, and I actually got in a double skull a few weeks ago and had no balance because <laughs> it's been, gosh, I don't know how many years, decades, I guess. Um, yeah, so translating more into surf lifesaving now that I live at the beach. Still board sports and boat sports, but not quite crew. And how did the transition from trail running and ultra running and snowshoeing transition into triathlon and bike racing? Um, after I finished my master's, I moved back out to California, uh, Northern California, and I met two women that were ultra runners, and it was just the way to get out of the small town I was in and go out exploring um, up in Lassen Park and some of the volcanic areas and everything that Northern California has to offer. Um, there wasn't much snow up there unless you went to Tahoe. And also got involved with a little bit of cycling, triathlon-type stuff there um, just for a bit of cross-training. and never really thought I would get into racing. Um And then when I moved down to San Francisco and joined the tri club there to meet people and to keep track racing and um, just more of a social thing, uh, started doing some stuff. It was a bit of fun. And then right before I moved to New Zealand the first time, a friend of mine was in a really bad accident at um, Ocean Grove Triathlon, which I think is now Oceanside, and uh, was in a coma for about a month and a half. And he had always wanted to do New Zealand Ironman. So when I moved down, I was like, that's it. I'm going to do New Zealand Ironman for both of us. And I did and finished second and made it to Kona. And then that was kind of the whole 
like ramroad into the Ironman stuff of Kona, Oz, Kona, Oz, doing long endurance stuff that Kiwis are noted for. Um, and then I, like I said, I started my PhD and at the same time I found out I had cervical cancer. And so the kind of idea of trying to stay fit and healthy came more with solace on the bike, trying to do PhD and go through chemo. So um, rode my bike and just kept getting stronger and stronger and felt better. And then after all of that, just kept racing. And did you race at an amateur level, professional level, both? Uh, started, as most people do, in the amateur and then um, carted up to Cat 1 Pro. Um, yeah, and did that for quite a few years. And it was a lot of fun. I still love riding. I'm not anywhere in your fit, so I won't show up to a group ride. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, some people find something that connects with them and they just have that sense of freedom. And for me, riding a bike, I think it stems from when I was a kid riding, it's just freedom. Like you get out, you can go see places, go long distances. It's not that painful. <laughs> Unless it gets hilly. Yeah, but that's all right. Cause you can go slow on hills if you need to you go fast on the sense if you want to, but there's no joint pain. You know, none of that stuff that comes with running as you get older. <laughs> And I know some people who listen to this are relatively young. I know many of my students, it's like their goal in life is to either is to work with elite level athletes. And I think what's always interesting for people who have raced at an elite level or done performance at an elite level, a lot of people who haven't done that don't realize that first of all, it's really, really hard. And second of all, unless you are in a very, very unique position, you don't make a whole lot of money. No, you don't. We have this jo ongoing joke in the professional cycling peloton world where the women's peloton was the most intelligent, and most educated, and the men were the exact opposite because the men would get picked up out of high school and get these massive money contracts where women had to go through and become PTs or do their PhDs or something so they could sort of support their training and racing at the same time because you might top out luckily at $25,000 a year as an annual salary whereas a guy would top out at 80 or 90 starting so is that huge discrepancy and you see it a lot in sports uh, professional sports now where I am the um, New Zealand rugby sevens both men and women are located here and watch them train. They all train just as hard. They go to the same competitions. But it's just now that the women were able to fight to get a decent salary. And it's just come through this year. And the Rugby Sevens have been around forever. I just saw that in the most recent Olympics and became a big fan because it was so much quicker and was over so much faster than the typical rugby match. Yeah. I laugh because the calm games were on and – the first rugby game of sevens I ever watched was Sunday night in the final match. And it was New Zealand versus Australia. And the only reason I watched it is because I know all the girls and I highly respect them and management. And it was, I'm going to admit it. It was pretty exciting. <laughs> good, good use of 14 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you're active in high school, you're active in college rowing. And I have the advantage of seeing your, uh, information as far as, so you, you major in s movement and sports science in undergrad. And my question is what made you decide to go on and get additional education with a master's degree first? Because some people, they finish up the bachelor's degree. It's like, okay, I know everything, or I just don't want to do any more schooling. 
Whereas other people say, as you did, I'm going to go on and I'm going to get the master's. So what was it that made you or the decision to get the master's? And why did you pick the university that you picked? Um, so truthfully or PC wise? Truthfully, this, this is a non-PC uh, podcast. Truthfully, I was 20 and didn't know what the hell I was going to do with my life. And additional schooling seemed pretty cool because you could focus on something. Um, and I was still, like, I started my undergrad as a poli-sci French major and didn't really fulfill that because I fell asleep in every poli-sci class. And so I didn't get into ex-phys and metabolism until later in the in the undergrad years. I was still really interested in that, and the opportunity to do a master's was interesting enough to pursue it. And Springfield College is where I ended up because initially wanted to go into athletic training, but when I got there, realized that wasn't what I wanted to do and had the opportunity to switch out of AT and get into more um, clinical metabolism and work with some key people there. And then when I finished, I was like, I'm not ever doing a PhD, not ever doing a PhD, just the same as I'm like, I'm not ever doing a postdoc. But things kind of fall in your lap. Opportunities present themselves and you're like, okay. So um, after my master's and moved out to do some clinical work in California, didn't quite meet what I needed or wanted to do. So ended up back in San Francisco um, working for a obesity surgeon in, in um, one of the clinics there and happened to host some of the professional Kiwi triathletes. And they're like, hey, New Zealand looks just like San Francisco. And some things, you know, kind of align. And there's a job that came up in Wellington. And I was like, well, I'm 25, single, no attachments. Might as well move across the world. So I did and um, got involved in the university system. And then there's kind of the push to get your PhD. And at the time, I'd been racing Kona and had some extreme problems in the heat, which was unfounded. Um, there were quite a few of us women in the high hormone phase who struggled significantly, whereas we hadn't otherwise. So uh, I wanted to investigate that and the opportunity to go to the very bottom of the world in Dunedin, where there's a heat chamber to do my research came up. And the system here is different from the States where it's a three year research intensive. So it's not five to seven years. Um, yeah. So got involved in that. And then at the end of my PhD, got recruited back to Stanford to work at the high performance center there. And after two weeks, kind of thought that might not have been a good idea because of the management structure. Um, and also was interested in having a little bit more research variety. So had my hand in human performance, but also public health and ended up doing a postdoc. And I was like, uh, you know, I'll never go do a postdoc, but the opportunity presented itself. And I ended up working with one of the most intelligent women I think I've ever met, um, who started the women's health initiative and, um, women's health. And, and we just kind of aligned and there you go from there. So almost in the right place in the right time in each situation and willing to take a jump saying, well, what the heck? Yeah. Cause I don't ever want to look back at my life and say, what if, what if I had done that instead of this? which also leads to the whole hiatus from academia. Like I've never thought of myself as a true academic. Um, I don't necessarily enjoy publishing for publishing sake. I like to answer a question and see how it's applied. Um, and the opportunity presented itself during my postdoc and then into the first and second year as a senior research scientist 
to work with the professional cycling team because at the time I was still involved in racing and stuff. Um, and at the end of my maternity leave, I didn't go back to Stanford because I had launched my own company and took a step out and really got into the startup world and understanding that and ups and downs of all of that and the stress of all of that. And um, yeah, very interesting and it's a steep learning curve. And somehow I ended up back in academia, but it's not, oh, I don't know if it's by choice or maybe it is, but it was a job that came up at the place where my husband really wanted to live. And it was a dream job of a brand new research lab in thermoregulation and having the opportunity to develop everything here. Um, yeah. So we made the jump a year and a half ago to come back. So now do you define yourself as a Kiwi or an American living in New Zealand? I'm a global citizen until the current president of the United States is no longer around. Your area of research, how did that come about? In, in other words, I know that there is, <laughs> we've talked a little bit, that's not something that's a common area of research, even though it's needed. What Was it because of your personal problems with racing? You thought, you know, I should be able to figure this out or I want to figure this out? Or was there another reason? Um, I think it's my entire academic career has been driven by questions that I wanted answered for myself. So I think it did start with that, like trying to understand why um, women weren't adapting to similar programs that their male counterparts were adapting to, um, why things like fasting didn't work for women but worked for men, um, even things like overtraining and the incidence of um, like heart rate variability and and power production and stuff, how that differs between the sexes as well when you start getting to that overreached position. And all these questions were not in the literature, so I had to figure them out myself. And also an uh, advising professor told me, well, why do you want to study women? We don't know enough about men. And I was like, hmm, yep, okay. That's another reason why we need to study women. Because if you're sitting here trying to advise me how to do research and you want me to use just men and none of this is going to be applicable to me, then, yeah, no, it's not going to happen. And it just kind of fell out of that. I want to ask you one more question before we let you go with part one of the interview. And I think this is something for people who are listening who are either amateur movement aficionados, which is one uh, audience for this podcast, or students or young professionals what you're doing, uh, as you said, there's not a whole lot of information out there on women's responses to training. What does the young professional do or where should they start to look if they're saying, okay, I'm reading this in a book, I'm reading all this information that I'm getting in my classes, and I'm starting to realize that most of it has been done on men, it hasn't been done on women. I'm working as a personal trainer or a coach and I'm training women. What do I do? <laughs> Um, there are uh, quite a few key women that have started to put together some interesting material. Um, I can count myself as one of those, but I won't. Um, but there's uh, Mia Schomburg at the University of Gold Coast. Um, she has done quite a bit of work on the way oral contraceptive pills affect training and adaptation, uh, how to design a, a research project to include OCPs or exclude OCPs. 
Um, then there is, of course, Constance LeBrun, who started it all. There is Nina Stockenfeld out of Yale, who does a lot of fluid balance and, and hormone perturbations um, and how to design research projects according to the menstrual cycle and across the age span as well. Um, then I have a book out for a layperson to read. It's called Roar. And it takes all the it's kind of like a literature review that's been translated into layperson language. Um, but if none of that's really available, then put your critical thinking hat on, right? Look and say, well, how was this study designed? Where is this information coming from? And now in the global land of Google, you can put in a search term, right? And find some of the really key components of what the outcomes are. It would be safe to say that Google is your friend if you use it with a critical thinking hat on. Exactly. Exactly. We've been talking with Dr. Stacy Sims. She is at the University of Waikato. I hope I pronounced that right. I apologize to you New Zealanders if I did not. We're going to come back in two weeks and we're going to find out more about her area of research, which is women's response to training. As she noted, there isn't a lot of information out of there out there on that. And with the increased uh, participation in a variety of sports by men and women and the ease of people to get into coaching who may not be qualified to get into coaching. I think Dr. Sims probably has some good information. If you're looking for a coach or a professional, or if you're somebody who is in the profession and starts to realize, I don't know as much as I should know, and I need to find some more information. So Dr. Sims, I want to thank you for talking to Moving to Live, and I'm looking forward to finding more about Roar and your area of expertise in two weeks. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.